Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 7. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 7. So reads the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is purged. Amen. Well, many eulogies have been said, and many more will be said over the, over the coming days as the nation enters this period of national mourning. And indeed it is true. Very few people in the history of the world have left such a remarkable impact in their own time. Queen Elizabeth, she died at the good old age of 96, having reigned for 70 of those years. And her extraordinary longevity made her the longest reigning monarch in the history of this nation. I believe the the second longest reigning monarch in the history of the world. And while the death of a monarch is often uh, a case, or of of a ruler is often the case uh, where the subjects rejoice and feel a a sense of relief, throughout the history of the world this has been more true than the contrary. It is not the case with Queen Elizabeth. People are mourning, people are sad, people are grieving and sorrowing. Queen Elizabeth was very much loved in this country and further afield in other countries as well. She was admired by many throughout the world. In my own country, if you refer to the Queen, everyone knows that you are referring to Queen Elizabeth or were referring to Queen Elizabeth II. 
So it is a momentous occasion, once in a lifetime occasion, an, an occasion that marks the end of an era, the beginning of another. But I can add nothing to the many eloquent and true appreciations of our life and reign that we have listened to over the past week. And even if I could, even if I could speak in a way that would add anything to the things that have been said, it is not the fitting of the pulpit of the churches of God to do so. The pulpit of the churches of God are for the proclamation of God's word and for the exaltation, not of man or woman, but of the almighty creator of men and women. It is rightful. It is, it is the, the true use of the pulpit to proclaim the word of the king of kings. But there is a sense, nonetheless, that it is appropriate for us as Christians to ponder and to charge the recent events that we have been seeing with a, with a biblical Christian worldview element. I suppose most of us are uh, still not tired of the news. It's all we get. On the news, talk about Queen Elizabeth II. I suppose it is still early days for us to be tired of it, but there will come a point where the news casts will change and they'll start talking about new things or old things that uh, were there before the passing or the death of the queen. But as Christians, we are to look at things from a Christian perspective. And that is right and proper for the pulpit to do. Just in the same way that we as Christians, we are not to sorrow or grief as those who have no hope. In the same manner, we are not to admire as those who have no God. Don't get me wrong. Christians do sorrow. We are followers of the man of sorrows. But we sorrow in a manner that is different from any other person or from any other group in this world. We sorrow as those who serve the Almighty Creator, the Heavenly Father, who turns our sorrow into dancing. Who will turn our sorrow into dancing. The one who's, whom, whom we serve, He overrules and He undertakes for us. And in the same manner, we are to admire, we are to respect and we are to honor but we do these things, not like the world does them. We do these things as Christians. As those who bring our every thought into captivity for the obedience of Christ, to the obedience of Christ. We admire, we respect, and we honor those things that represent the divine qualities of our God. But I'll say a little bit more about this in due time. Our text this morning 
says that in the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, it begins by stating that in the year that King Uzziah died, and right at the beginning, we are brought to face the ultimate reality, aren't we? The ultimate reality of life. That even the mighty, the powerful, those who hold high offices, die. Doesn't matter if you're a king or a subject. Death is the common denominator. It doesn't matter if you're an anonymous, homeless man, that upon his death, no one will say anything. You will go from this world in anonymity. It doesn't matter if you're Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. We all die. One day, sooner or later, everyone has to come before the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and have their lives weighed up in the scale. It is the parable of our Lord Jesus, that famous parable about the rich man and Lazarus, isn't it? We are taught by, by our Lord in that parable that doesn't matter. As healthy as the rich man was, he still died the same death that Lazarus died. Because whether rich or poor, whether powerful or anonymous, whether well-known or not, no matter how much you have, no matter how much influence you have, those things will eventually not be able to save our lives. Worldly wealth cannot prevent our own inevitable demise and when it finally happens, the only thing that really matters is where are we in our relationship with God? So I want to say this right at the beginning in no uncertain terms. Death is coming for you. Death is coming for me. It comes to the rich. It comes to the beggar. It comes to the king. It comes to the, to the subject. It comes to those who have... Uh, a degree in, the, in, uh, in those fancy universities. It comes to those who don't know how to read. Death comes for the governor as it comes for the governed. It comes to the king and the vassal. It comes to old, yes, but it also comes to young. Death's arrow is said reaches to the highest of penthouses and palaces. Death's cold, bitter Hand touches the rich as well as the poor, the powerful as well as the powerless. And death is coming. Hebrews says that it is appointed for men to die once, and coming in, but after this comes judgment. So who is the judge that sits in this judgment? If we continue in verse 1, we read, that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Yes, even monarchs must die. And yet God still reigns. King Uzziah died. And God is still sitting on his throne. 
The King of Kings lives. He is the living God. He is the everlasting King. He is the judge of all the earth. And this is the one to whom we will have to give an account of our lives. It is said of another king of this country, King James I. You perhaps uh, will know him better because he is the monarch whose name is attached to, to the King James authorized version of the, the Bible. It is authorized by King James. It became known as the King James Version or the authorized version. King James I, at some point in his life, he tried his hand at being a judge. And after hearing both sides in one particular case, it is said that he was perplexed, that he was in despair, because he heard the message, the, the, both sides, he heard what both sides had to say, and he said, by my soul I know not which is right. And King James is not, was not alone in this perplexity. It is the perplexity of every single human being. We do not judge rightly. If you're a parent, like, like many of us are, you know this. You, your, son, your son comes and your daughter comes and both of them are telling you a different version. And then you start in, interrogating and you realize that actually you're, you're just as, you know just as much as you knew before you started interrogating. Why is that the case that we cannot judge rightly? Well, for two reasons. First of all, because we're not always right. We're not perfectly just. So usually when one of my kids misbehaves and I don't know who, who it was, uh, both of them end up having the, the punishment. I know it's not perfectly just, but it's, it's what they, they get. Uh, And we are not perfectly just. And we lack perfect knowledge. Even if we were to be perfectly just, we lack perfect knowledge. In any situation, we don't know everything. But it is not so with our God, with the judge of all the earth. It says in Psalm 40, 11, verse 4, that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his throne in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. He knows everything. He sees everything. And that is both a, a wonderful thing, if you're his, or a very daunting idea, if you are the, one of those that doesn't want anything to do with God. Isaiah says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw him. To which you might ask, how can he see God? Doesn't the Bible says, say that God is spirit that cannot be seen? Yes. But God sometimes, in his condescension, he condescended to reveal himself in a manner that it would be seen by his people to clothe himself with visibility for the good of his people. He appeared to uh, Abraham. He appeared to Joshua. He came, and when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes. Joshua lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood 
opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And, jo- and the man said, No, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face. Why? Because he knew he was in the presence of the Almighty God. He fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals for the ground uh, of your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So God showed himself to Joshua as a military commander, as a captain, as a commander of the armies. And to Isaiah, he showed himself in his condescension as a visible uh, king, in exalted kingliness with a throne, with, with attendants around him. To showcase his majesty and his dominion. High and lifted up. High and exalted. It says that, that, that Isaiah saw him in his grandeur. But notice something. It is an interesting thing to see. When, when Isaiah lifts his eyes and he looks and he sees the Lord sitting on the throne. What, what does Isaiah describe? He doesn't describe the, God. God is too big and too majestic and too infinite to be described. He is in the presence of the Almighty God. He doesn't describe his face or his crown or, his, or, or what he has in his, in his person. No, it's as if the eyes of Isaiah firmly, as he sees that he's in the presence of the Lord, his eyes just drop down. And what does he look at? At the robe. It is enough. He says, the robe, the train of the robe of the Lord filled the temple. He could not bear to look and to contemplate the Lord. My friends, brethren, brothers and sisters, let us mark this as an aside, yes. But let us mark this, that God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be trifled with. We live in a day and an age that talk about God is cheap, irreverent, at times profane and blasphemous. God seems to be in everyone's lips. It is uh, uh, easy to say the name of the Lord, to take it up in vain. In, In fact, sometimes even with crude adjectives attached to it. But it's not just out there. In churches up and down this nation, God is trifled with. Worship of his name is cheapened. It became entertainment rather than worship. I fear that sometimes, even in our circles... We have developed this sense of God that is, that is completely contrary to the God that we see in Scripture. The God that Isaiah looked and he couldn't even behold him, he had to look down. The God that Moses couldn't behold and the elders on that mountain Who believes these days in a God like this? 
Do you believe that you're standing in the presence of a God like this? Do you believe that you're standing in the presence of a God that slayed Ananias and Sapphira because they lied about the price of their property that they had sold? We have this view of God that is more akin to, to, to Santa Claus than it is with the God of the Bible, the almighty Jehovah of Scripture. But the God that Isaiah encountered in the temple in that day was not some puny, man-made God. No, he, the vision that Isaiah had was of an awesome God. So much so that he was awestruck with the vision of the glory of God. Spurgeon said that it was a sight such as few eyes have ever seen. Oh, Isaiah felt the raw and sharp edge of the terror at being in the, in the place where few men have ever dared to go. We have a similar instance of this in, in Exodus as the elders go up the mountain in, the, in the Exodus 24.10. And, and as the, let me read it for us, Exodus 24.10. As they are in the mountain with God, verse 9 says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, sorry, 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet again. They saw the, the father, the, the God of Israel. And what is the description? Well, it's the, the flooring was blue. Under his feet was paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like a very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hands. So they saw God and they ate and drank. Again, they saw God and what, what is the only description that we're given? Something down there because we do not dare to look at God. When we press the elders of Israel, they tell us how blue the pavement was. There is a barrier. There is a barrier between man and God. That it's not simply penetrated because we want to get into the presence of God. There is something about the holiness that Isaiah goes on to describe. That the angels proclaim holy, holy, holy. There is something of the holiness of God that should make every single human being shudder at the thought of being in the presence of God. Because he is holy and we are not. And he cannot contemplate sin. The whole earth is full of his glory. The train of his robe filled the temple. It tells us that God sees all. That he is everywhere. That he is near. And yes, for those of us who are Christian, for those of us who have been purchased and washed in the blood of the Lamb, it is one of the greatest things to know that God sees. Oh, but if you are one of those that is very little time to God, that doesn't want anything to do with Him, this is not good news for you. He sees everything. 
His glory fills the whole earth. His train, the robe, the train of his robe fills the temple. He is everywhere and he sees everything. And he is holy. Perhaps holiness is the most exquisite, the most sweet, generous of attributes of God. God's name is qualified with the adjective holy more times than any other adjective. In scripture, holy is the primary, the most fundamental attribute of God. So much so that the attribute in this passage in Isaiah 6 gets repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be judged by this holy God? Well, holiness means that he is separate, that he is different, that he is in himself, in his nature, holy. No one made God holy. He is holy. No one ever bestowed on him the title of holy. He is holiness he is holy because he is unique. He is the standard of holiness. He is the example of holiness. He is the paradigm of holiness. He is the archetype of holiness. Every other thing in this world that has, that has a claim to the title of holy derives that holiness from him. Why is the, the word of God why do we call the Bible the Holy Bible? Well, because it's God's word. That's why it's holy. It's his word. Why is the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, holy? Because he is God. Why is the Spirit holy? Because he is God. Holiness is the most fundamental attribute of God. Being holy is what God is. He doesn't have to conform to any standard to be holy. There's nothing outside of him that you say, well, this is the, the paradigm of being holy and God conforms to it. No, he is the, the paradigm. He is the moral standard for all other things in this universe to be holy. And sin only accentuates this. As you look into a world full of sin, unholy, defiled, we should, as with Isaiah, confess the same thing. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of kings, the, the Lord uh, they have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What does it mean for God to be holy, holy, holy? You see, in, the he in Hebrew, the language uh, that the Old Testament was written, when, I wa when you wanted, or if, even today, if you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, use repet repetition. If you want to say something or emphasize the size or the grandeur of something, you use repetition. If I have a stone, 
and I'm speaking in Hebrew, I say this is a stone. If I have a very big stone and I'm speaking in Hebrew and I want to emphasize that it's a very big stone, I say this is a stone stone. We kind of do that in English as well. If I have gold in my hand, I say this is gold. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, when you wanted to emphasize that the gold was pure, that the gold was of the best quality available, you would say, this is gold gold. So it is eye-opening. Not only that God is described as holy, not even as most holy, 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 twice, but in, to describe God in this way, you have to bring the third Superlative, superlative. He is holy, holy, holy. He is supremely holy. And the angels singing this make the house shake, make the temple shake. And this effect on Isaiah is devastating he feels he feels utterly convicted by his sins and he cries out woe is me for i'm undone i'm a man of unclean lips and you should pause to wonder we don't know for those that don't know the context isaiah is a prophet of god if there is anyone who has clean lips in jerusalem in this day it is isaiah but isaiah says oh no in light of the holiness of God, in light of who he is, even though, yes, comparatively speaking, relatively speaking, he is rather holy amongst his peers, he knows that he is not even close, that he is a man of unclean lips. Yes, he was in comparison with his fellow citizens, a holy man. But yet, he is remarkably unholy when compared to God, the holy, holy, holy one. It's the same sensation or it's the same effect that we get when we read Paul in the New Testament. He can speak of himself as the least of the apostles. And you say, okay, fine, that's, that's humility. But then he goes on to speak of himself as the least of all saints, as the least of all Christians. And you go, oh, that. But it even says that he is the chief of sinners. The Puritan John Flavel, he used to say that when the corn is nearly ripe, it bows the head and stoops lower than it was when it was green. He said that what happens in the fields when the when the corn is becoming ripe, the the it starts bowing. And then he says, "So it is when the people of God are ripe for heaven, they grow more and more humble and self-denying." Isaiah wasn't ripe for heaven just yet, but he was being prepared for a lifetime of service. And he knew the unworthiness of his person. He knew how sinful he was. Oh, let me say this. It is better to be humbled now. It is better to be humbled now in the presence of the Lord and receive his forgiveness than to remain proud and be humbled at the judgment seat when we stand before him. If you want to grow in grace, there is no easier 
or there is no easy, painless way of going about it. There are no shortcuts to being holy. You must see the wretchedness of your own heart. You must see the, the vileness of your own sin. And you must humble yourself before the Lord. Someone said that, I don't know exactly who, but I said that they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. And Isaiah knew his sin. And finally, we read in verse 6 and 7 what the Lord did upon the confession of sin of this man. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Pause there. I don't care if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Pause in this at this moment and ask yourself what did Isaiah do to deserve the cleansing and the purging of his iniquity there are places in scripture that, that I had a, a, a teacher that described it as non sequiturs of grace places where you see grace where you don't expect to see it it doesn't follow from what you just read that now Grace should be extended to Isaiah. It's, it starts in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, sin. God had said that in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And yes, they did die spiritually. But there is a non sequitur of grace there. That as, as God is pronouncing the, 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 the curse upon the serpent, he, they, they understand that actually God is being gracious. We didn't do anything. We actually done quite the contrary to not deserve his grace. We've done all we could not to deserve it. But God gives grace. God graciously gives them the promise that not only they would not die physically, but that God would send a redeemer, that God would provide an escape code, that God would provide a, a, a redemption to them. Genesis 3. As they sin. Verse 13, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? They sinned, they deserve death. And the woman says, it was the serpent, deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly. You shall go and, on you, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Even, even at this point, if you're Eve and Adam, you're asking, wait, we're going to have children after what we've done? It's a non sequitur of grace. God's character in here in Isaiah 6, to, to, to go back to the text, is disclosed as a gracious God full of mercy to those who confess their sins. But make no mistake, it is only after you confess your sins, after you've humbled yourself in the presence of God, that God will bestow forgiveness upon you. 
This is always the, the burden and the order that we see this in Scripture. Jesus' first sermon, Ma- Matthew 4.17. Matthew 4.17, the Lord, our Lord, as he preaches, he says, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent. It is always the first step in having a relationship with God. Repent. It was the lack of repentance that led many to run away from him. And I find it beautiful here. That as Isaiah confesses his sin, it is God who takes the initiative. It is God that reaches out first. It is God that seeks out first. He took the initiative of forgiving Isaiah, of cleansing Isaiah's lips and mouth. And he took the initiative of saving us, his people. In fact, John says that these things, that all these things that Isaiah saw, he was seeing Christ. And ultimately, ultimately it is Christ, the one who saves us. The one who we, who we admire. To go back to the, to the admiration, the, the honoring of, of Queen Elizabeth and how we should do it as Christians. It is Christ that we honor. Him who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to bring it over to the, to the beginning. How, how do we admire as Christians uh, Queen Elizabeth? Well, we admire, if we are to do it as Christians, not to admire like the, those who have no God. We are to admire in her the elements that point us to Christ. The elements that show to us that God in his common grace was bestowing a gift upon this nation. The deceased monarch, yes, we can admire in her those true qualities that are ultimately a copy, a representation of the self-giving, serving attitude of Christ the King. What is the things that she's being admired for? Or one of the many, or some of the many things, the life of sacrifice, the life of service, the life of of putting herself second by putting her people first. Those are things are most exquisitely and perfectly seen, not in Queen Elizabeth, but in Christ the Lord, our Savior. He is the one who came to serve the King of Kings. He came to serve and not to be served. The one who could lord it over all of us. Who had the right to do so. He did not do it. But he gave his life. A sacrifice for his people. 
And this is the monarch, the king of kings, before whom even Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II will have now to bow. At her coronation, Queen Elizabeth was given a Bible. And in the Bible, we read about this sovereign king of kings who rules over all creation, who is exalted, surrounded by worshipping angels. You see, as I came to London, and I'll finish by saying this, as I came to London, one of the, those things that I've always desired to do was to see the Queen. Even if it's just at a distance, uh, as she, she was in the, in the balcony. I never had the privilege of doing so. I never got an invitation to go to the Buckingham Palace, even though mo- many of my friends and family members back in Portugal asked me if I have ever went to have tea with the Queen in the palace. Sort of a joke, but no, I never was invited into her presence. I never met her. I never saw her, actually, physically. But I do know the King of Kings. I've met with him because he's met with me. Because he has invited me. And I know this is true of many of you. Perhaps you've never met the Queen in person. Because you never had an invitation to to do so. But having been invited by him... The King of Kings. You now know him. He died in our place. He took the hell which we should have, which would be ours. And that was the ultimate act of self giving sacrifice, dying upon that cross. And today we. As we mourn the death of Queen Elizabeth, we also remind ourselves that we have a new king in the, in the throne of England, king, uh, king Charles III. But then again, you probably will never be in his presence or have uh, an acquaintance with him. But the king of all kings invites you to receive him as Lord and Savior and to live with him. Pledge your allegiance to him for all eternity. Have you felt something of your need this morning? Something of your uncleanness in the presence of the almighty God? I give you this promise that is from God himself who is the ever-living, omnipotent, resplendent, holy, and glorious King of all creation. He says in Jeremiah, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Oh, may the Lord grant that you would do so. May the Lord grant that we through the written work, uh, written word, and by the work of the Spirit, may likewise submit and subject ourselves to His rule.
over in our lives now and forevermore. Amen.